Thank you. Uh, welcome, everyone. Uh, I'm Rosa Carrillo, uh, and I'm the author of The Relationship Factor in Safety Leadership. And I, I just want to take a moment for each of us here uh, in the room, the Zoom room, to just, uh, just say your name and where you are. And if you're working with a um, company or, uh, you know, just, just very briefly, please, just who you are. So why don't we start with Phil? Oh, Philip is muted. How about you, Bill? Hey, I'm, I'm Bill Nelson. I'm in Houston, Texas. Um, Retired about three years ago from DNVGL. Before that, spent a lot of time at the Idaho National Laboratory and, and also three years at the Alden Reactor Project in Norway. Oh, wonderful background. Uh, Phil? So I'm, I'm currently in the United Arab Emirates. So I've spent 42 years in the nuclear industry. Uh, I'm over here as a uh, safety culture specialist. Mm. So are you connected to Lisa? No, I don't think we've met. No, oh, nice to meet Lisa, where are you? I'm, I'm in the Netherlands. Okay. But you worked with, why don't you just talk a little bit about, why don't you just... Sure, I'm, I'm Lisa Landy. I'm one of the, the hosts for, for the Safety View. Uh, I was with Los Alamos National Laboratory for 15 years um, as a licensed psychologist, but um, facilitating leadership development and also uh, safety culture and organizational culture and development. And uh, about a year ago, started my own consulting organization uh, focused on the same aspects of organizational development. Wonderful. Thank you, Lisa. Um, Earl? Yes, hi there, Earl Carnes. Uh, I'm retired. Like Bill, I'm fiddling around doing a few things. I, I also am predominantly nuclear in my career. Started off commercial work with the Institute of Nuclear Power Operations, uh, then gravitated to the U.S. Department of Energy. Uh, and this is the kind of work predominantly that I did in addition to policy and uh, some uh, inspections, that, that kind of thing. I had the privilege of working with IAEA uh, on uh, their culture uh, uh, efforts and things like that. So uh, I, I currently do some part-time things looking, for example, right now at the Department of Energy uh, COVID-18 response and how that's going. So uh, that's where I'm from. Oh, a lot of depth of experience here. Michael? Hi, I'm uh, Mike Teague. I'm a retired firefighter who is working on uh, with a group of people to bring the safety to human and organizational pro uh, performance stuff into the uh, municipal fire service. Well, that's great experience. A lot of complexity there. Just a little. <laughs> Just a little. <laughs> <laughs> and Paul? I am Paul Daly. I'm in Dublin in Ireland. I work with a civil engineering company. I suppose um, I've been kind of signed into a few of Ron Gans sessions there and I'm new, relatively new to LinkedIn. So safety leadership popped up. So I clicked. All right. Thank you. Welcome, Paul. Lindy? So I'm Lindy Scott. I'm here in South Africa. So um, I run a company called the Health and Safety Dialogue Company. So what we do is help different organizations, mainly in mining, create internal comm strategies and culture strategies. And we're in the process now of building an 
online platform called Amber, which is a culture and communication platform for safety reps. So it's focused on Africa first, and then we'll, um, we're looking at other markets after that. Oh, that's exciting to have Africa represented here. <laughs> um, Kathleen? Hey, I'm Kathy Dobson. I'm a safety director for, um, for a large construction company. Um, I've worked with them for 20 years. And um, my, uh, my, my focus is really on, on employee engagement and, and trying to improve the relationships between those safety guys and the, and the rest of the world. Um, you know, I, as I was telling um, Tamara earlier, I, I used to be an enforcer. Now I try to be an influencer. Congratulations, that's a big transformation. <laughs> uh, Tamara, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself as one, our, our host at large and making all of this possible through the uh, miracle of the internet. Very honored, Rosa, to be here with you and Lisa. And I'm really looking forward to this conversation. I do work at Safeopedia and I'm the director of their uh, community and social development. And so I'm just really glad that we can be doing something to help bring everybody together. And you're, and uh, Safeopedia is our host. So I'm gonna give credit. Uh, Eric, since you came on, hello, how are you today? Oops, can't hear you. Can you hear me now? Yes. Okay, thanks. Uh, my name is Eric Labonce. Um, I've been actively researching um, trends in safety for about a year and a half now, but I've been working at Velocity EHS for about two and a half years, roughly. Um, my motive is to simply provide a digestible, actionable, and easy to read content for safety professionals so they can get information on how to improve their day-to-day -day instantly away from technology and using technology to just simply complement existing processes, but using their mind and relationships to kind of build some impact that maybe um, can happen through a simple perspective change. And I'm learning that is possible. So I'm here to learn from all of you more so than <laughs> what I have to contribute. So I'll probably be humbly listening the most of the time today. But thank uh, you. Don't be too modest, Eric. Eric has a great <laughs> model that I think would be great if safety professionals, especially getting started in the profession, you know how to address um, some of the people issues. Let's see, I don't know if Harvey wants to introduce himself or Jim because they're- Sure, sure. Uh, my name's Harvey Liss. I work for a company called Culture Change Consultants. Uh, we've worked on, or I've worked on uh, safety culture change for probably 20 years with about 70 different companies. And I have the proud distinction of having been trained by Rosa Carrillo. <laughs> Thank you, Harvey. And Harvey also has a lot of worldwide experience, Africa and Mexico, I mean, everywhere, right? Worldwide. Worldwide, yeah. And Jim, can, you're not Hey, on good morning, show. Rosa. Good morning, Jim. Hi, I'm Jim Marinas. I have a background in nuclear power generation for electricity, Road submarines in the nuclear navy um, have worked around the Department of Energy complex um, in various research aspects, and um, in the last five years have branched out and um, do consulting. In what field? Uh, all of those. 
Harlan. All fields, all right. Well, um, you can see that we have a huge depth of uh, knowledge here. So I'm not here to be a teacher. I'm here to introduce some ideas and hopefully get some dialogue going because uh, we're all tired of the talking heads and PowerPoints, at least I am. Uh, and uh, so I just wanted to, this is our, our very first time getting together, Tamara and Lisa and I thought uh, about a few ground rules that we thought would help our, our dialogue and conversation. I don't think any of you will find it uh, uh, strange, but one is that um, to build on each other's ideas. So uh, when we're going to, uh, you know, speak up and continue the conversation, let's acknowledge what went before, uh, especially if we disagree, which we think is great. If if we have different points of view. We just have to acknowledge that uh, the person that came before us. So if you disagree, then just uh, repeat what you think you heard and have the person just kind of acknowledge, yeah, that's exactly what I said. Um, let's be, um, uh, use the words I think and I feel so that we own our ideas. Any reactions to that or? Other thoughts in terms of what would help our dialogue just be open. We want to create a safe space here uh, so that people can be authentic, be themselves, try out new ideas that maybe if you, you're thinking, wow, if I bring up this up with my management team, will I be left out of the room or will I lose my credibility? So we want to leave all those kinds of worries outside the door. Uh, it's not an easy thing to do, but we're going to do our best. So any thoughts on that? <clears throat> that sounds good to me. So we will take silence as agreement then? <laughs> no. <laughs> you no. know that's not a good thing to do. <laughs> so we'll use a lot of thumbs up and thumbs down to, uh, to get some uh, input um, in, as we move along. Ah, thank you, Paul. Hey, yeah, that's right. We have emojis here that we can actually uh, use during our talks. All right, so let me open up with uh, some thoughts that I've been having since I published my book, and some of you might have read it, uh, The Relationship Factor in Safety uh, Performance, how to, how to Get Employee Engagement. And the whole uh, focus of, of that book was the research that I had been gathering for many years on the importance of building relationships in the workplace. And I see that as a primary uh, leadership competency, leadership responsibility uh, to build those relationships. And so in my book, I expound on a lot of, uh, you know, the reasons why and the research, uh, which is very interesting. And it may come up during our discussion, but suffice it to say that it, this is not an original idea as um, much as just a very heartfelt um, recounting of my 25 years of experience in the field meeting uh, great leaders who fundamentally uh, respect people, value their ideas, value their input. And they make everything look so easy, you know, <laughs> things that other leaders or other managers, I should say, because if they were practicing leadership, it wouldn't be so hard. But other managers would be frustrated and, and, and just couldn't figure out how to get things done. And these um, leaders would just do it. And uh, for example, in machine guarding, um, 
you know, oh, the employees keep taking down the machine guards or they keep disregarding the machine guards. And, and, and uh, another leader would say, well, you know, I, I have the employees do it and they put it all in and everybody follows it. Uh, it's, uh, so it's not anything brand new. And, and I started thinking about, okay, so what is the difference then since the information has been out there for decades that relationships are important uh, and that in fact they contribute to productivity, uh, better safety, uh, better attendance at work, better uh, collaboration, less conflict. Uh, and what comes to mind are the, the Tavistock uh, mine uh, industry in, in the 40s and 50s when they began to discover that um, in order to improve efficiency, the mine owners had disbanded the original work groups and had assigned uh, specific tasks to specific people. And for some reason, production went way down, accidents went up, uh, people uh, uh, you know, were reporting in sick, absent, uh, and the uh, Trist and Emery, Fred Emery and Eric Trist said, oh, we've actually broken up the natural structure of, uh, it's almost like a family, right? The, the, the relationships on the team where people looked out for each other. When somebody got injured or hurt, uh, they would actually take care of that person's family. They would help feed them and clothe them. That's, that's, the, that's the essence of what we're trying to do here. Unfortunately, over the years, and you guys will share your experiences, but we've told uh, management when we train them, leave emotions at the door, feelings don't count. Uh, we have to uh, do efficiency, put a lean, the emphasis on lean organizations and cost savings. Uh, and people don't realize, I'm not saying that people are bad, they just don't realize that they're actually undermining the social structure uh, that makes the organization successful. So the social structure, uh, my current um, motto is putting the social back into socio-technical. <laughs> and uh, so you'll be seeing that a lot, socio-technical safety, uh, which is not new again, but somehow we have to get, uh, especially in our educational system and, and in our practitioners, uh, and a, a really clear understanding uh, that if the social systems aren't functioning, it doesn't really matter how good your technical systems are because that's why people aren't following the guidelines, they're not following the rules, uh, they're uh, not listening to each other, they don't understand, they, uh, and then we're not getting that information that we need. So we're all, we all say the most important thing is trust and open communication, but do uh, we really understand exactly how that is built in the organization? Uh, so um, I don't know if I've said anything uh, so far that, that resonates with you. Uh, basically, I believe that men and women's men need to belong is the primary motivator and driver in organizations and that almost everything we do is either consciously or unconsciously driven by the need to belong. So I'll leave it with that statement. That's a great kickoff and I am very interested in hearing everybody's ideas. I do want to just um, ask if we're not speaking, if we can mute ourselves because we are getting some background noise. Okay, I will mute. And 
who is um, interested in going first? Maybe anybody want to volunteer? Yeah, go ahead, Philip. So I work in a, a very multicultural organization. Um, I, you know, a lot of what you say resonates with me as a, as a Westerner, but I'm, I'm not sure it's the same with the, um, the Asian partners with whom we work. Um, and there are levels of, of issues or things like um, power distance and the impact that that has on, on the socio-technical side of, of their work environments is very, very different to that that we have with the, the Western, particularly the, our American impo counterparts. Um, and, and, and it does cause some serious challenges. Um, and there, there is often unspoken friction. And it's a, I'm not sure how much we really understand this. I think I'm in a unique environment, you know, um, nu nuclear power plants have been built in, in all parts of the world, but we have a, a plant that's being built to be owned and operated by Arabs. It's being constructed by Koreans and it's being operated to the IMPO model. And our, our management team is 95% American. Um, and that, that causes, does cause some difference. So, interested in your views and opinions from, from the rest of the group. Now, that's a really excellent point, Philip, and I'd like to hear from the folks that have worked uh, in the Middle East uh, and, and, and Asia, because power distance is, it is very real. So, any, anybody with experience on that subject? Yeah, uh, Rosa, let me just mention something. I, uh, we work for a company that um, builds um, small, uh, mid-sized turbines for offshore platforms. And I was working uh, in Indonesia. And um, I, I always read a book about where I'm going to go work. And in any case, this book referred to a concept called Ababa Pak Senang, which in Bahasa, I probably didn't pronounce it correctly, means father knows best. And um, it was, the book was describing Indonesian culture. It wasn't specific to the, you know, energy industry. Uh, but it turned out that when I learned of this concept and shared it, shared those words with the uh, workforce who were primarily Indonesian, just everybody lit up. Uh, and, and, and actually said the, the letters, ABS, because that had a tremendous influence on whether they were going to be able to, willing to speak up uh, working on a platform. Because in that case, the father would, would have been the, the, you know, the, the facility manager. And they work pretty much alone representing their company. And so it really put them between a, a rock and a hard place because they run, ran the risk of um, not being allowed to come back. And I encountered this in Angola as well, same sort of thing. So uh, I think what Phil's raising is, um, uh, you know, a very important point about the variety of cultures that you're dealing with. 
So uh, just to follow up on that, Harvey, uh, so people lit up and, and what did that mean specifically then in terms of how you were able to move forward? Yeah, well, having said lit up, actually what it meant is that somebody understood or introduced a key thing for them. And that actually opened up the dialogue. I mean, we were debriefing on a survey and so forth. Uh, and since the, I don't know, there were maybe 30 people in the session, and I would imagine that 25 of them were Indonesians. And there were, you know, the Europeans were there as well. But it, it um, and also I would say that all those people saying ABS out loud created space for them because it meant they were not alone in thinking that. Hmm. So levering, levering the culture, uh, leveraging a, a deep belief in the culture opens the way. Um, and, and back to Phil's point, I don't know what everybody's reaction to this is, but uh, there is power distance, but the need to belong remains constant and consistent. It's just that there's different rules to belong in each culture. Each culture has its own rules to belong, so I think it behooves us to find out what those rules are. I, I would uh, just relate to a, a very a true story, a real story, and it just it, it poses some questions associated with power distance and the depth of it, the depth of feeling associated with it. Um, very close to, to our accommodation was uh, the, what was referred to as a, a, a golf club. Certainly wasn't a golf club. It was more like a, a, um, a, 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 a social club. That's what, that's what I refer to it as. Um, they had a happy hour for three hours every evening where the beer was cheap. And Korean work parties would arrive. And you would see them arrive. You would see them... Get to the get their alcohol, and they would they would arrange around the table. They would then be instructed, please, please sit by the leader, the the senior person, whoever it was, and it was it was very very clear the the, the social structure, until maybe an hour and a half, two hours into the evening, as they drunk more alcohol, that seemed to go completely, the social structure, power distance was right out the window with the the um, lubrication of alcohol. It's just a side note. <laughs> you were able to be more authentic under the influence. <laughs> Who's holding back? It's, it's my experience that, um, and, I, and I talk about this because a lot, some people hold back because they think, oh, uh, you know, I don't want to dampen anybody else's participation, and so we don't want that to happen here. If if you're uh, if you have the experience or you have a firm opinion, please throw it out. One of the things that I wa uh, want to introduce into our ongoing group is that um, if you want to be a, a change agent, the place to start is with yourself. Because knowing who you are, being self-aware uh, is the starting place. And that's where the social emotional skills are so important in a leader. And I know I can see you guys, you know, nodding your heads. 
because the kinds of things uh, we're, we're talking about in terms of leading, um, leading an organization require empathy, they require the ability to listen, uh, they require the ability to solve and help people solve complex problems, which means that you're not there so much to solve problems, but to be able to engage the group in the solution of the problem. So this is, this is a uh, work starting with yourself in your own personal domain. So you need the systems, thinking skills, you need the social emotional skills. And I would say the third of that um, three legged stool is mindfulness which is a practice that keeps you centered and open and able to work in very stressful situations. I can't imagine a more stressful situation than nuclear, having worked in that arena for a long time. There's uh, so many rules uh, and the, the whole notion of safety culture is so rigid and so uh, ingrained uh, that it's very stressful. It's a very stressful place to work. Um, so please, what, um, feel free to bring in whatever you're thinking of or working on at this point that you feel is really going to make a difference uh, in terms of us being effective and successful. I'll share a bit, if I may, Rosa. Yes, please, Aron. Okay, uh, just, just an example. Some of you are aware, but uh, in New Mexico, there is a deep underground mine for the storage of uh, nuclear waste. Uh, a few years ago, there was an, uh, an accident there, a fire, which is not a good thing to happen in a mine. It costs several billion dollars to restore this as a, a national issue and actually a worldwide implication. So uh, a, a year or so ago, when I was visiting with a team of mine there, um, this issue came up about what you were talking about, power distance, subcultures. And the point I want to illustrate by explaining this as briefly is, that, uh, as you were touching, uh, touching on, the problem of misdiagnosing a technical or regulatory issue for what, in fact, is at, at root a social issue, okay? So uh, all this work was done you know, to revise the procedures and, uh, uh, and develop a lot of new processes along the lines of nuclear safety. I go in with a group of mining specialists and have a focus group with them. Very, very thoughtful individuals, highly experienced, they came from a deep mining, uh, you know, deep uh, uh, level mines experience to this operation. So they, it, it came out during the discussion that they felt like that the nuclear people had come in and completely disrespected the culture of their discipline. Very accomplished individuals, some with 30 years of experience and simply said, your experience doesn't matter, i.e., you don't matter. We're in charge. We make the rules. So all the work that had been done for a couple of years was on the making the rules stronger side, not recognizing that the fundamental issue to build from 
was this relationship between actually among several competing cultures. Mm -hmm. uh, and they had brought a couple of new executives in who were more sensitive to relationships. They were using the word relational management. Okay. Mm -hmm. uh, they spent a lot more time working. And I brought up something in our exit comments because I was saying, what does this remind me of? You know, as someone who does oversight has, it hit me that what it reminded me of was in, as you well know, the medical world where you have the idea of the second victim. Mm -hmm. And so the second victim are typically the nurses, the technicians, so forth, who are involved in some process that suddenly something happened, no fault of their own. Same kind of thing with these mining experts. They were doing what they thought was the right kind of thing to do in their culture. But then other people came and said, no, it was because you weren't smart enough. You didn't follow our orders, things like this. And so, in fact, you had a, a, a group of people who were the victims also. Okay, they were social victims of things over which they had no control. And by voicing that to the CEO, uh, who was sympathetic, it was, ah, now I have a concept I can deal with, and we can start a new way of having a conversation. So, you know, it's for, for inspectors, having this perspective you're talking about, trying to say what actually is going on here is, is a very valuable thing from my, uh, from my experience because most people get tied up in the technical and legal uh, legal network uh, out there and, and just completely miss, you have to go back and start the relationships. Thank you. Well, I'd, yeah, I'd like to kind of build on that too, because I think um, I've seen it so many times where somebody will come in and just really take over an environment with their ideas without first kind of stepping back and being humble and checking in, you know, what has actually been going on. And, and Kathleen, I think this goes to what we were speaking to today about learning from the workers. Would you agree? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, and, and you have to understand where, what you're, what you're getting into and where you're going. I mean, I can, I can relate to a situation where we had, we had brought a project manager, um, very opinionated, um, very much into I'm the man kind of a guy. And um, we put him on a, on a mine site. Now keep in mind, this is a surface area and, and, and we were breaking ground on a green site. Um, and so there was no mining activities going on, but it but the work fell under MSHA. And he would constantly tell people, I don't care about MSHA, we're just doing it this way. And when it was brought up that there were issues that needed to be corrected, he, for instance, a, a, a berm needed to be placed on a roadway. And he said, we'll get to that roadway at the end when we put up guardrails. And so somebody contacted MSHA because within, the, within MSHA as opposed to OSHA, you have to fix things right away. There is no, there's no set prioritize, there's no prioritization on which hazard gets fixed first. They all get fixed immediately. And 
So he didn't understand the culture of the mining industry. And, and so it can get you into a lot of trouble that way. Yeah. Well, thank you. Um, that I want to go back to the, the, the social, um, what did you call it, Earl? Uh, it was a, like a social accident or injury, right? We never talk about what happens to people as injuries, but that's, that's really what it is, is that when we are disrespectful or don't listen to someone, is it really about the fact that, well, we, we know the rules and regulations and you don't, or is it because you just disrespected me? And so uh, I, I would like to talk about that, how, um, how can we make our safety professionals, our managers, and then I would like it to go beyond safety professionals I'm talking about because ultimately the supervisors and managers uh, are the ones that, that need to, um, that implement this, but to begin to take uh, the social system as seriously as they take the technical system. Any thoughts? Rosa, I'd like to throw something out here. Yeah. Can, can you hear me? I think yes. I'm off mute. You know, we've done ourselves a disservice by equating credibility with what can be measured in a very technical way. And as a consequence, those aspects of performance that are not observable necessarily, but have huge impact, have been overridden and undermined is unsubstantial. And I'm thinking of Donna Hicks, who came and gave a talk at Los Alamos National Laboratory, and she recited some very interesting research that had been done studying brain and emotional pains resilience and how it hangs in there much greater than physical pain. So when they measured um, movement in the brain after somebody had been insulted, let's say, that light up on that part of the brain stayed longer than somebody who's pain of breaking an arm. And because it's only since we're able to measure that impact that now we're giving some credence to those aspects. Mm -hmm. Long story short, I think that has contributed um, that lack of being able to measure and demonstrate impact from the emotionalist had a huge impact on our ability to embrace it. And, and we made the, those rules ourselves, didn't we? That only what is measurable is valid. We made up the rules. I don't think they were handed down to us by Moses, were they? No. And much more significantly in technical organizations. Too bad Moses wasn't there. <laughs> well, so social injuries are equal to physical injuries in terms of your organizational performance? Maybe even more sustaining. Yeah, more injury. I didn't know about that, but those studies that you were talking about, I, I know I was reading about the, the cyberball game where one of the uh, team members, they, they were not tossing it to that team member. That was the experiment. And the part of his brain that lit up was the same part that where you experience um, physical pain. So exclusion is actually uh, very, feels like a physical injury. So thinking back in your, in your own life, in your own experience, does that ring true for you? Go ahead, Jim. 
I'll just come in, um, and there are several on this call that will be able to relate to this, I'm sure. Um, when I started working in the Department of Energy System, uh, one of the first tasks that I had was to um, almost completely rewrite the procedural uh, set for the, the research community because it had been written um, with a little bit of prejudice uh, against the, the research approach. And in fact, uh, it was really accelerated by the, the shutdown of Los Alamos. If you guys all may remember, there uh, had been an accusation of uh, loss of control of classified material, and there had been a laser um, eye strike and a couple of other pretty noteworthy events and some in the predominant technical side of the business, many from um, ex-Navy environments um, came in and proclaimed that the research community was full of cowboys and buttheads. And that got inserted throughout the Department of Energy approach. Um, and, and somebody coming in as an eminent researcher was left in a position of having to defend their approach before they could even start doing work. So we, we had to reframe the conversation and we had to provide the, the space for the research community to be able to, to interact and relate using their own terminology and, and hold that technical side of the business, which was predominantly procedures and processes and, and systems based and, and all of that conversation at bay and, and give the research community the, the room to be able to talk uh, using their own terminology. Um, long story short, at least in Idaho, um, that resulted in a sustained period decades of uh, unprecedented funding advances in research um, and actual support of a, a, a very good work environment for the research community. And it was something that um, eventually was recognized by the, the other side, the operations-focused individuals. Uh, but it was, a, it was a really tough road but it was, as you're saying, Rose, it was based on providing opportunity to have the conversations and the, the trust and the psychological safety that was necessary for those, those individuals in the research community to blossom. Mm -hmm. Hey, Jim, I just wanna add some very interesting historical perspective that also highlights how um, culture is so contextual. I was pulled in after Nanos, who was director at the time of the Buttheads and uh, Cowboys comment, by a physicist. And he had been at the lab for almost 30 years at the time. And he showed me a document that had been put out by one of the first directors. I think it was Dan Brown. And Dan had, Director Brown had been asking for the Cowboys to come out and take charge and drive forward in scientific research. And that was the desired culture at the time. So talk about uh, creating um, 
oh, well, one, hypocrisy in leadership, but also creating real angst for people of which way are we supposed to move, be cowboys or not be cowboys here. It was very interesting. Bill, were you gonna say something? You took yourself off mute there. Um, I was just gonna address the topic of communication. I come from the technical side of this whole equation. I'm an engineer. And so my task over the years has to been build systems and tools to help people make good decisions, no matter what the context. But that has led to the realization that you have to provide a common language for communication across the disciplines and across the organizations and even with the regulatory authorities. And so in my, in my recent work in the oil and gas industry, uh, both for pipelines and offshore drilling, we had the opportunity to, to test some of those things. Um, when you've developed tools or structures to support assessment of a situation and making good decisions, they provide a, a common language for communication. And, uh, and even, as, as I've said, communication with the regulators. Um, we involved the offshore drilling regulator, Bessie, in the development of a, a new blowout preventer for deep water drilling. And, uh, and we were in the process of using this approach and, and actually capturing uh, the rules for regulatory decision making during operations. And it turned out to be, in, from what we could see, a very effective means to create this common understanding so that everybody agreed to what the, what the objectives of the operation were and you could have upfront some understanding of, of how you would behave or how you would decide in a certain situation. And that, that's really important to creating psychological safety because people know, right, what to expect. So Bill, as an engineer, what do you think about all this uh, social systems uh, talk? Well, I, I actually think it's essential because the technical systems <clears throat> don't, cannot function properly if, if the social systems aren't prop, properly addressed. And uh, so I think we need to come from both sides and, and, meet, in, and, and meet in the middle and, uh, and address both. And although I'm an engineer by training and have worked you know, to develop tools for operations people and engineers and management, um, you, you still have to make sure that you're, you've got the, the social environment so that things will will function properly. And, and as you say, people will feel enabled, empowered to, to do the right thing and it, at the right time. And in fact, uh, some of our work with pipeline companies focused on that very much because we would get called in after a major accident where the problem was that the, the operators didn't detect a situation. And, uh, and you ended up with, with, uh, well, in fact, one of the situations, by the time we got there, the, the people involved had been fired. And in our, in our analysis 
of, of the incident. We weren't doing the initial incident investigation, but in our, in our assessment of the situation, we found out that the operators had not violated the procedures. The procedures did not require them to, to act within any certain time frame. And needless to say, there was a little bit of an aha moment where the control center management said, oh, we, we fired those people. So it's all, it's all important. Did they get bring them back, Bill? Um, not that I'm aware of. I, in fact, I think they said, "Oh, they found." Fortunately, they found good jobs they elsewhere. Found good so jobs. Yeah. Pipeline operators were in great demand and still yeah. are, I assume. Well, you know, Ed Shine uh, remarked to me um, the other day that perhaps um, the social systems are primary be uh, because if, if the social systems aren't in place to support what you're trying to do technically, uh, your, your, te uh, you know, your technical solutions aren't likely to work. What, what do you guys think about that? Because I've gotten some pushback because people say, no, no, we have to make them equal. We have to make social and technical equal. Um, let, let me react to that quickly, Rosa. Yeah. Um, so many of the things that I've been involved with, uh, the, th the system failed because people did not have the right information to make, make a good decision. So in those, in those circumstances, you can have the best culture, you can have the best culture in the world, everybody can feel good about each other and, and have good relations, but if people don't have the right information and tools mm -hmm. to make the right decision, it's all for naught. So I think it has to be equal. Mm -hmm. I just kind of wanted to build on this, you know, it, it brings my mind back to many, many years ago when I first started in safety and I was um, in Central America actually. Um, and, and I was sent to, like they were finding out that the workers were doing things um, contrary to the procedures that were set out um, by the, the North American construction management. And so I was sent, I sent over to, to find out why the workers on the operational side were not going through the practices that had been sent by the management side. And um, for those of you who know me, I have a social work background. So I, I kind of come at things from that perspective. And I started talking to the workers and they thought that what management had sent down was totally local, crazy. Um, because the way that they were doing it was much safer because they weren't putting workers at risk. And so it was like bringing the two to the table to understand that how the, how the workers saw safety for the work to be done was very different than what the North American management who weren't on the job site at all were perceiving to be safe. And it was very interesting that when the two came together, how they kind of um, learned from one another about different ways of doing it. And in fact, the, the, the North American management then started to agree on the Rotanians way of doing it. Although it took more people to do the job, the way that they wanted to do it was in fact eliminating certain risks that the uh, North American management hadn't thought about because they were so used to doing it a different way with different types of equipment in North America that the Rotanians didn't also have access to. So that was a beautiful thing to do that when that space for conversation was opened, the learning on both sides. 
Mm -hmm. Nice example. Hi, <laughs> I kind of joined late. Hi, Lisa. Um, hey, yeah. I, I know Lisa because uh, she did a lot of work with us. I, I'm from Pantex uh, in Amarillo. So um, I was wanted to comment on what Tamara had to say. I, um, I'm a black belt and I also have studied and written on um, organizational behavior and culture change. And what I've learned uh, working within engineering and manufacturing is we have engineers and well, we have all traits, but uh, all disciplines. But I've noticed mainly with engineering when we find a lot of things that go wrong is we have engineers, and I'm referencing what Tamara said on the social background with the different cultures. Um, it's, it's very, very obvious, very uh, visible. We have engineers from DOD, DOE, corporate America. They travel internationally. Um, and then we have engineers that have been at Pantex their entire career. And when they come in and do a project, they cannot communicate with each other. And it's not that they don't want to or that they're choosing not to, they just don't realize that they're speaking different languages and they are so set in their culture and their, their behavior, how things were processed and done. Mm -hmm. And I'm not an engineer. Um, I'm a, I, I teach, I'm a college professor, professor online and in the evenings and then I work at Pantex. So I, um, I came in and I thought I'm not going to fit in because I'm not an engineer, but the person that brought me in said, this is why I need you because it's not that they weren't wanting the change or that they weren't wanting to learn how to communicate better. It was just that they were all speaking their own jargon and nobody was ready to change it because I mean, you've been doing it for so long, right? So it's really, really interesting because when I go out and I find an issue, when we do a black belt uh, project on something, I'm not telling them what they did wrong. We're pointing out exactly what the process, where the process failed. And it, it could be what we call, um, we, at Pantex, it's, the term is used tribal knowledge because it's been there forever. And we call it the founding fathers of Pantex, right? It's been there, it's never changed. <laughs> so, and, and even though they try to change the procedure, it just never, it was never executed. So we have to go in there and we don't say, well, we need to change our behavior because they automatically feel defensive. Sometimes they take that as defensive, like what's wrong with my behavior. So the approach we have to use is how can, how can we get your knowledge to make this better? Because they are our SMEs. So it's really, really interesting when you talk about your social background, because what I'm doing is I'm trying to get a collaboration of everybody. Cause there's, we have some, I mean, some amazing just geniuses at work that they just have a hard time collaborating and sharing their ideas and applying them, right? Because we can listen all day long, but it's a demonstration, the application and all of these other things. So it's really, really interesting when I listen to all of you talk from all of your different backgrounds and experiences. I did come in late, but with my job, I'm having to go into a culture that is, is, is very, it's a very strong culture. And um, as Pantex has changed with, with this new contractor and our mission is getting, is, is becoming a lot more, uh, I don't know, I don't know what, what's the right word to say, but we're getting extremely busy. We're getting new programs. We're getting very, very busy. 
um, to just keep it very general, um, it's very interesting because we're getting a lot more diversity in the engineering world. We're getting engineers that we've never had to use before, different that that have different uh, focus on different different dip disciplines, and so. Uh, I'm learning a lot just listening to how the issues that you've have some of you have experienced and I'm interested in how you you don't ever want to repeat history right and I've been at Pantex for about 17 years and so it's really interesting because I know some of the history but we have engineers that have been out there 30 or 40 years and we're trying to get they and they're knowledgeable but we're getting engineers that are very new and so listening to culture and how culture changes and how you have you're able to impact it because you're right, I have seen, uh, we can probably build another building on the amount of money that we've lost in effort just because someone didn't wanna deal with the changes or there was no communication. Mm -hmm. So um, I'm also a trainer, trainer on, on ProSci AdCar. I don't know if you guys are aware of that. So I use that model a whole lot. I use that a lot. And I don't tell the people I'm using it, but I use it, I bring that awareness, that desire, that knowledge, the ability, the reinforcement, everything that they need to help them make those changes with in steps. So um, I really, I'm gonna have to check out a little bit. That's why I kind of popped in because um, I'm teleworking and until coronavirus kind of calms everything down here in, in our town, we're considered a hotspot. <laughs> so, um, but I wanted to plug that in because I'm interested to, to come back into the next one because all of this helps me when I deal with people and, and change and how I can better apply my models, that the tools that I'm using. So, so I, I would like to just respond on that one. I see a real connection to what you've just described with the common nomenclature to what Bill had mentioned a bit ago. Um, and that only compounds the problem, doesn't it? Because they're brilliant and they're locked into their way of pursuing things, these different engineering factions. And now, you know, they also don't have a common means of communicating. And the other thing I just wanted to throw out, I've been just getting more interested in David Snowden's work and he's talked more about getting away from culture and talking about identities and how um, what I'm hearing you describe are these new engineers of different you know, backgrounds and maybe generational differences and how they form a different identity than what might be exist and maybe talking about these as identities and being open to each other's identity um, is, is kind of an interesting paradigm shift. I have nothing more to say about that, that but that might be future fodder for one of these conversations. Is yeah, it I, identity I or a, I agree, that's a, that's a great topic because I would really like to delve into um, the use of the word culture. Certainly safety culture is out out for me because you can't separate safety out from the rest of the organization. And instead, there's all of these subcultures within the organization. And we have to communicate differently with each one. So uh, that's that's the challenge that, that we're in. And I look forward to um, building on that. And on a last note with Bill, um, you've raised an excellent point that if people don't have the information, then it, it doesn't matter how well they get along. And I, I want to emphasize that the social aspect of safety isn't about friends and getting along, really. It's about understanding uh, how we impact each other, uh, how we're miscommunicating, uh, and having that self-awareness to, to know uh, that something like that is going on, because uh, that's not something that we're taught 
in our uh, universities and even in our management programs, we simply aren't taught to be tuned in to those aspects of communication. So I can give you the best informed article that, that, that I can come up with, but that doesn't mean, number one, you're going to read it, and number two, that you're going to understand it. So that, that's where the, the social aspect comes in for me. Can I share something briefly? Yeah, um, I posted we've got two videos. Uh, one or two minutes left. I'll be very quick. I posted two videos. One's a short video. Both are with uh, Edgar Stein. Uh, Edgar Schein in one video talks about his challenge with getting engineers to communicate cohesively. They all had brilliant ideas and they couldn't really put them all together. And I won't give it away, but he solves the problem very simply by getting them, by not, the quote I put here is, um, it ultimately wasn't, he wasn't trying to influence them in the way he wanted. He had to figure out what was the best way to influence them from the way they could understand. And then, and then the second video is quite longer. It's a Google talk with um, again, at Shine, and, and he talks about his challenges at DEC, at DEC, and um, again, so he, he, he learned that ultimately that was the potential downfall as well as the engineers were arguing with each other and then they broke off into different, um, different departments and there was a lack of communication and then beyond that there was also um, hostility because people were trying to pitch the best product and they weren't looking for the best interest of the company. They were looking for the best interest of their jobs, their livelihood and not of the actual idea itself. So you may like both those videos. They really, I thought they were insightful and yeah. Um, I, and I just want to, um, before we sign off, I want to let everybody know that I am going to be sending out an email with those resources in it. And if you do have resources for other people in the group, uh, please share it amongst yourselves. And I also wanted to really encourage people to network with one another, take this opportunity. That's why we're doing this. So that, you know, it's not about just collecting numbers on LinkedIn. It's about making sure that these connections that we're getting are actually helping to drive us as human beings, as professionals, as we go. And I'm just going to put a little plug in that we are doing a Safety Connect um, virtual conference expo in October. And I'm going to send everybody the link in case you want to register for that too. It's totally free. And Rosa, I'll give you the floor for the last minute. Oh, no, thank you. I, I <clears throat> Thank you everyone for attending. I, I am very um, <clears throat> humbled by your presence because you are all such amazing people and have so much knowledge. So thank you for coming and helping us kick off our experiment. <laughs> Thank you. I will say I, I just sent a, a quote from Diane Vaughn uh, to all of you, and it's uh, speaking to your point, Bill. And uh, we could maybe pick this up as a topic next time we visit. Thank Great you, Bill. Send in those topics. <laughs> Excellent. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, everybody. Bye. Bye. Thank you. Thanks. Bye. <laughs>